Welcome back to the Righteousness mini-series on the Good Lion Podcast. The title of today's episode is The Self-Righteous Pastor. Today on the show, you're going to hear a great conversation between two pastors, Brian Stupar and Char Broderson, as they discuss how easy it is for self-righteousness to infiltrate the hearts of ministry leaders. But before that, here's a conversation between me and Brian Higgins to open up the show. So, man, um, I think that quite often in my experience with ministry, I just see people trying so hard to get right with God and to reach a point where they feel like they've arrived. And my whole life as a young person growing up in the church, I feel like it was like I was always looking off and seeing in the distance this unattainable righteousness where, you know, I felt like if I just got to the point, I mean, for me, really, honestly, it was like, I thought I boiled all of Christianity down to read your Bible and pray every single day. And so for a long time, that was my goal. If I can just read and pray every day, then I will reach peak Christian. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I, I remember being in youth group and when my youth pastor would ask me how my relationship with Jesus was going, the two questions in my head were, when was the last time I read my Bible? Yeah. And when's the last time I sinned in a way that I'm embarrassed about? <laughs> and if I read my Bible recently and hadn't sinned like that in a while, me and Jesus are great. Like that was, that was the criteria for me in my mind answering that question. Hmm. Where, what is your criteria now? It's a lot more gray than it <laughs> used to be. It's a lot less black and white. Um, to me now, when I'm answering the question, how are Jesus and I doing? It's a lot more like I'm answering the question, how are my wife and I doing? Hmm. It's more about how aligned and united our two hearts and minds are. Uh, It's a lot more just about the loyalty that I feel in my own soul towards Christ. Wow. And just sort of, am I, has he been my number one priority is more of what I'm thinking through when I answer that question. Cause I remember yeah. like, I, I totally agree with you. I used to go to church and look at the people on stage and think, Oh, maybe one day I could be like those people. Cause they must have it together and they yeah. must know. And like, God must really answer their prayers. Like I, I used to think all of that type stuff. Yeah. And now I'm in, I, I reached the spot where I became one of the guys on stage and right. suddenly it was like, wait a second, I am not, I am not put together yet at all. Like I am yeah. not arrived. I am still so far from where I want to be. It's so important for us guys on the stage. Well, I'm not on stages anymore, but I used to be one of the guys on stage and mm-hmm. it's so important for guys in that position and girls in that position to make it clear that that is not arriving. Like yes. when you get to that point, you are literally just another Christian, another sinner, another Christ follower who has been placed in a role of responsibility. And what are you going to do with that responsibility? Are you going to set yourself as the standard where everyone thinks, oh, I need to attain to that? Or are you going to be honest and say, hey, I am not the standard. I'm just a punk who's following Jesus with you. We're on the same road together. And my job is just to be the guy who points you to him. And to be honest about when my eyes get off of him and how I need someone to point me to him. Um, I just think it's so important for people to understand that if I could just say to everybody listening right now, if if you're struggling with this, you will never arrive. You will, until you get to heaven, there will never be a point in your Christian life where you reach 
peak Christian where you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh man, I woke up at five today and I read all of Leviticus and I journaled for six hours. <laughs> I am the ultimate, like it's never going to happen. You're never going to have a week where you never sin once. Like it, you will, you will always be human until we reach the point where we fully become new creations. And that's not a license to sin, but it is a license to have more freedom in the sense of understanding that our calling is not to perfection. It is to the perfect one. If your goal is perfection, if that is your standard, if it's, I just need to be perfect, you're, you're going to be constantly frustrated, which is how I felt when I was a young Christian constantly. Thanks for listening to Good Lions. Stick with us. Coming up next, we have a conversation with pastors Brian Stupar and Char Broderson about what it's like to struggle with self-righteousness as a pastor and how we can move past it. Here's a couple of thoughts that I had in the whole self-righteousness topic. Um, I was thinking the other word that could be used for self-righteousness is self-rightness. Um, I think why it tends to be so appealing and yet at the same time uh, so destructive um, is that it forms sort of its own self-authenticating club and tribe where people are prone to self-congratulate one another, pat each other on the back, affirm one another. I think it's central to the heart of humanity. We want that. We want that outward or explicit type of praise. We want to be in the club. We want to be recognized. We want to be invited to those conferences and invited to that table where, you know, the leaders are, you know, present. Um, and we want to say the right things, uh, utilizing the right language and vocabulary and ideas that kind of play to the group think. Um, there's three thoughts that kind of come to my mind as to why I think this is so um, significant and why it kind of plays into that overall narrative of self-righteousness. Number one, it's measurable. Number two, contractual, meaning there's these contracts that are kind of like formed. Number three, it's self-commending, so measurable. I think the idea there is it's way more easy to measure someone's visceral reaction to the enemy or the perceived enemy. Um, I, you know, I can't tell you how many uh, pastors conferences I've been sitting at tables where everybody begins to, or somebody starts by talking about, hey, did you hear about this book that so-and-so wrote? Or, and then all of a sudden everybody kind of chimes in. And uh, before you know it, you have almost like this harmonizing voice of anger or frustration and, um, in some ways, this kind of gossipy type of um, reaction. And it's measurable. Everybody can kind of walk away feeling like, yes, we all have a common en enemy. But in reality, what, what was happening was a complete um, removal of any form of love or kindness or um, thinking the best of the other person that might not be a part of that tribe or maybe once was part of the tribe but no longer is part of the tribe. So I think number one, it's measurable. It's easy to measure that type of thing. Number two, I think um, contractual, meaning um, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And it's it's a legalistic type of an approach. Uh, it's formed on um, 
wages uh, con- a contract um, sometimes spoken but most of the time it's like an unspoken type of a bond that's formed between people within that various tribe uh, however that that works great as long as you are operating within the system the moment you break ranks with that system the moment you question that system you are now viewed as the um, the questioner or the outsider or the one that is causing problems and because it's not a system of grace um, you now become the common enemy and I've I can't even tell you how many times I've, I've watched this I've watched this happen um, where people that were once kind of on the inside circle and they end up becoming the enemy and the very voice that they had that was so stringent or so just visceral towards enemies um, the the very people that to whom they were speaking now become the visceral voice against them because they broke ranks um, so I think number one measurable number two contractual number three self-commending and I think again it, we all have this need to be affirmed and that self-commendation is a, is a powerful one Hey Brian, uh, in reference to your first way and about self-rightness and kind of the clan tribal um, patting on the back, you're one of us, tribal righteousness, I guess, uh, just reminds me so much of what's going on right now on the political left with the virtue signaling that we see going on social media or Slack, Slack Instagram or whatever you want to call it. Um, but just so people having to weigh in and say, yeah, well, I'm with this. And we're not necessarily even doing righteousness or justice, but just as long as we um, kind of tip our hat to it, speak up for the Me Too movement, we've done our job. And that's kind of the new uh, self-righteousness of our culture right now is um, being woke, aware, um, you know, active in social engagement, but really only on social media. So... Um, I don't know, just kind of triggered some of those thoughts as I was listening to you. I was going to read a quote from uh, Dallas Willard, which I think is super timely. It's from his book called Renovation of the Heart, and it's the chapter called The Costs of Non-Discipleship. So he starts with this question about righteousness and self-righteousness, right along the lines of what we were talking about. Uh, He says... um, Righteous meanness among Christians is a common point of commiseration among Christian leaders. He says, a leader recently asked me, why are Christians so mean? And the answer is that Christians are taught by word and example that it is more important to be right in terms of their practice or wrestle uh, than it is to be Christ-like. Being right licenses a person to be mean, righteously mean, of course goes on to say now i must say something to you that you may be mad at me about he says a fundamental mistake of the conservative side of the western church is that its basic goal is to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people this creates groups of people who may be ready to die but clearly are not ready to live they rarely can get along with one another much less than those quote-unquote on the outside Often their most intimate relations are tangles of reciprocal harm, coldness or resentment, righteous meanness, 
they had become quote unquote Christian without being Christ-like. Um, I think obviously this quote speaks for itself, but um, Char, you had pointed out that the left progressive movement today, I think tends to, uh, is moved into what I would look at as kind of like the zone of self-righteous um, attitudes in at least within the political slash secular sphere. But the same principles I think that uh, Willard points out apply, which is rightness. Who is right? Who is wrong? And I think that plays into the whole self-righteous mentality. So good conversation. Uh, Brian, I could listen to you talk all day, man. So good. And I think just kind of taking this conversation, I think it naturally flows into that, uh, what we were talking about, spiritual disciplines, because uh, in our church, we have, we've confused uh, self-righteousness with good works, I think, to some degree, like there's this, these blurred lines. And so what I've been trying to do with our people is talk about imputed righteousness, that that is a biblical idea, absolutely. But then there's also infused righteousness. And, um, you know, as Jesus um, imputes his righteousness to us, then there's this work, this effort that must be put forth to make that righteousness our own. Um, and I love the, the way N.T. Wright puts it, you know, that we practice these spiritual disciplines or habits of the spirit, of uh, these virtues that are um, hope, faith, and love. And by practicing them um, in Christian community, uh, in consistency with the word of God, prayer, all these things, uh, that as we practice them, they become second nature to us. And, and, and we walk in the spirit and have the mind of the spirit uh, by second nature. It's not natural to us. It's a learned practice uh, and these learned virtues, but in the way of Jesus. And I think that that's a huge uh, and important conversation for our generation right now, because, you know, uh, when I was a kid, um, I think like you were saying, Nate and Aaron, you alluded to this as well. There was a lot of, uh, you know, just that moral effort being talked about. And I think the church has done a good job of kind of re, uh, redefining the gospel in, uh, in a biblical way and laying that foundation. But I, I can see it just going again now to this idea of almost free grace. And I think it's really important for us to to what Dallas Willard says is the gospel is not a, is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And so we need to clarify that for our people uh, and for this next generation of Christians. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at um, Calvary Costa Mesa's men's group. And I was talking about, hey, you know, a lot of us have heard testimonies um, from guys like, you know, Louis Zamperini. He's the guy from uh, the book Unbroken or the movie Unbroken. And, you know, it's like he's this um, veteran who's dealing with PTSD, crazy anger, night terrors. He's an alcoholic, drug addict, abuser, all this stuff. And long story short, he goes to a Billy Graham crusade and gives his life to Jesus. And he's never the same. And I remember growing up, I heard these uh, stories again and again and again, and I'm dealing with like incredible, insatiable lust in my own life and porn addiction 
And I'm just like, man, like, I don't know what's wrong with me because I have been baptized. I have had hands laid over me. Um, and I want that. I want that freedom that Louis Zamperini is talking about. And I, and I just, I can't experience it. And, and I'm going to spiritual leaders and they're telling me, oh, I need the baptism of the spirit. Oh, I need to, you know, have hands laid over me and to pray this out. And I just, you know, do better, try harder and it will go away. And, um, I, and so I was sharing with this men's group, maybe, maybe you feel stuck. Maybe, maybe you're like me. And I said, I think what we find in the new Testament is that Louis Zamperini is, is probably a rarity. These guys are the exception and not the rule for the rest of us. We are going to have to work hard at, you know, what Peter and Paul say in the epistles of putting off the old man, putting it to death and then putting on Christ, putting on the mind of Christ and the spiritual disciplines. And I think that this is a, uh, is a, a hopeful message that we need to give to this next generation of Christians about the practice of the spiritual discipline so that we aren't just, you know, spiking and then dropping down into the valley, spiking and then dropping down into the valley but so that we live this consistent jesus um following jesus example kind of life that we're called to live yeah it's a good word char um effort as opposed to earning that's a such a great quote from willard um it's powerful i i think there's some i don't know evangelical baggage that has to be addressed and what i mean by that is with regard to anything that evangelicalism deems as ancient religion um catholic orthodox um high church i think there's a tendency to view it with a lot of disdain and or if anything um suspicion and so i think when people start talking about spiritual transformation or spiritual formation or spiritual disciplines um spiritual practices i think these are viewed with a lot of suspicion and personally i feel like it's one of the areas that needs to be recovered in my opinion in modern evangelicalism um which is ironic because on one hand there seems to be a mindset that the main spiritual discipline that kind of gets communicated within evangelical circles is, you know, AKA the quiet time, which, you know, is sort of this fusion of reading the Bible, praying, you know, journaling, whatever, which is, which is wonderful. But I think, um, depending upon, I mean, I, I work with a lot of younger people and I'm finding now that there's a lot of, again, disdain, towards even viewing that type of stuff because that was kind of what their mom did. And so there's this sense that I'm discovering of lostness. There is a detachment from these ancient practices. Um, or if they did do these practices, they were detached from meaning. And when they were detached from meaning, they become these just routine exercises that are, you know, boring or lack any form of meaning or purpose and whatnot. And at some point, um, they just stop doing them, whether it be going to church, reading the Bible, praying, fasting, things of that nature. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we're doing a series right now through spiritual practices. We're calling it Renovation of the Heart. And um, I have no problem saying we just ripped that title off of Dallas Willard because it's such a good title. But um, the reception of this has been really, really good. Um, just talking about these spiritual disciplines and how, like you said, Char, 
they are ways of helping to train us. They're not the end. And that's the thing I've been communicating over and over again weekly is that these are not the end. They're simply the means to the end. The mean, the, the end is ultimately we want to become like Jesus. We want to be transformed like Jesus. Um, the effort that we put into partnership with the Holy Spirit, again, it is God does the heavy lifting if you want to think of it that way. But there is a partnership to which we are invited by the Holy Spirit. And that partnership typically looks like us saying yes to God. Yes, putting on the mind of Christ. Yes, to us, uh, you know, clothing ourselves in the, um, the the ways of Christ. Um, I tell people, look, God does not like the, generosity. That's, for example, the practice of generosity that happens by you doing something. You first of all saying yes to God. Maybe even you backing up a little bit. First of all, admitting the fact that you're not generous. You're stingy. So confessing that, and then beginning to enter into or step into various practices that would make you into a generous type of a person. In fact, we even call the time of giving on Sunday morning now, um, not, hey, we're going to give our tithes and offerings, you know, which is fine. But we actually say, all right, guys, here's what we're doing right now. We are doing what we're calling the practice of generosity. It's a way to exercise that muscle of generosity. So anyway, I, I think that's a, a great topic to look into because we're really talking about instinctive behaviors that we want to see um, worked into our spiritual growth, um, which eliminates, hopefully, as we step into this self-righteousness. So we're back to that same subject. Uh, lastly, the heart of the gospel is about God putting forth, demonstrating a new form of righteousness. Not just simply God doing good works, but God setting forth right relationships. And Jesus, obviously, being the very embodiment, depiction of the righteousness of God, God putting things to right. Um, and the very heart of the gospel is that God commends us. God does not commend our sin. God deals with our sin. He calls us to the carpet over our sin, our sinful proclivities. And yet God welcomes us in the heart of everything. And that reality melts us if we allow it. Um, that reality gives us the self, gives us the uh, accommodation that we desire, the authentication, the authentication that we want, um, the welcome that we are really oftentimes longing for, that ha we have a tendency to search for in other tribes or contexts um again the appeal of a self-righteous tribe is 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 high um and yet it's corrosive it's destructive it's cannibalistic i would even add um and yet the heart of the gospel the community that jesus is forming is life-giving it's the exact opposite of cannibalistic it's one laying their life down for the other um and Heart of the gospel. This is this is our message. This is the message we preach, and we need to preach to ourselves often. Hey, thanks for listening. What a great conversation between Brian and Char. Thank you so much, guys, for contributing to this podcast. And now to close us out, here's the second half of my conversation with my co-host Brian Higgins. Brian, take it away. Absolutely, it's so easy to think that. If we make progress every day, then eventually we'll reach our goal. I mean, our, our lives are filled with goals that we strive for until we reach. 
Like we just keep working mm. and pushing and moving until we reach the goals that we set. The problem with the goal being perfection is that mm. we eventually, or I shouldn't say eventually, as time goes on, we realize more and more how much farther we have to go. Yeah, It's like running a marathon, but at mile three, they tell you, hey, we added five more miles at the end. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, that's just mean. And then, yeah. you know, you reach mile six and they're like, hey, we added another five. And it's like the finish line just keeps getting further and further away. And that's not because we're doing anything wrong or because we've messed anything up or anything like that. It's purely because we can only see so much of who God is at any given time. Yeah. And the closer we get to him, the more aware we become of different elements of his character, of different habits that he has for us to live in and walk in. And we need to see more of those as time goes on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I love how you defined what your standard is right now as an adult, as a, as a husband and as a, as a pastor, as somebody who's walked with Jesus for a long time, your definition of what your relationship is, your relationship with Jesus doing well, what does that look like? I love how you defined it as basically is my heart in sync with Jesus. That's, that's huge. Like for me, I feel the same way when I was younger, whether or not I was doing good with God, it depended on how many times I read my Bible that week. Nowadays it's how obedient am I being to Jesus? Yeah. How much do I love Jesus right now? Because that's something some people get mixed up is it's all about the love. It's just, Oh, I just love Jesus. And I love listening to worship songs all the time, but there's no obedience for me. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, the way that God has revealed to me what faithfulness and righteousness looks like, it comes through obedience. And I don't mean that, again, to discard everything I've said in this series where I'm saying it's about following the rules and keeping the commandments. To me, obedience is something that comes out of a right relationship. If I understand that Jesus is my master, if he really is my Lord, if he really is my king, and if he's my best friend who knows best for me, then I am going to do the things that he tells me to do. When he tells me to live a certain way or go somewhere or, or go sit down and love on someone and, and preach to them or, or buy them a, a sandwich because they're hungry or whatever. Um, to me, that's what makes me feel like I'm living the Christian life is when I'm doing the things that Jesus is telling me to do through his word and through the spirit. Yeah, and think about the right response to a savior is gratitude and love. Yeah. You know, if, if the lifeguard pulls you out of the riptide in the ocean, you are grateful to that person. And mm. if that person immediately turned around and said, hey, you know, gratefulness would include buying me a sandwich right now. You wouldn't <laughs> sit there and be like, what a jerk. How dare he? You'd be like, definitely, man. Like you just you saved my life. Like, of course, I'm going to do that for you. <laughs> you know, it just changes the way that we look at things. And so when we remember Jesus isn't just a master, he's a savior. He's a creator. He's someone that cares for our state right now. It changes, like we've been talking about this whole time, what the right response is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think right now would be a good time to talk about another Christian word that gets used a lot in sermons, but maybe not a lot of people fully grasp. And that's sanctification. The process of walking with Jesus and becoming yes. more like him is sanctification. How does that look like in your life and, you know, on this journey where you're no longer trying to arrive and reach that peak Christianity and now you're just focusing on the day to day with Jesus? What what do you think about sanctification? 
I think it's a very important topic. I think it's hard to talk about because a lot of us have the mentality that Christianity is about being with God when I die. Yeah. Um, I remember I read a great book. It's called After You Believe by N.T. Wright. Mm. And he kind of outlines this idea that in the beginning uh, of the book, he says there's a lot of people where the goal of Christianity is to be with God when they die. Hmm. instead of one of the goals of Christianity is to be with God when you die, part of the goal is to be with him right now. While you live. Yeah, and to, oh, to live so more good. in line with who he is and what he's done for us. And one of the verses that he kept pointing people back towards is uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 13, when it says hmm. at the end of that chapter, abide in these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest hmm. of these is love. Wow. He would say part of what it means to be sanctified is to walk deeper into those things. Mm. So it's not just, and that, that was pretty mind blowing for me because it changed it from, it is about, I need to take on more and more tasks. So like sanctification used to be in my head, I used to read one chapter of the Bible a day. Now I read two. And right. like it was just upping right. the numbers and upping the scale or upping <laughs> uh, the amount of tasks I was trying to take on. Now it's do my choices demand that I live with greater faith? Hmm. Or as life goes on, do I live less attached to the hopes of the world and more attached to the hope of Jesus? Yeah. As I go through things in church and in family and in whatever, Am I more prone to choose love or less prone? Like those become the questions that guide us. And so sanctification is just walking deeper and deeper into the character of Jesus. I know that in teachings, I used to say all the time, the commands of God are really just an invitation into his character. Hmm. They welcome us to understand who he is more. And we should be stepping deeper and deeper into that. And that whole process is what I would define as sanctification. Dude, that's so good. I'm just going to leave it right there because that's so good. Hey, thank you so much for listening to episode five of the Righteousness miniseries on the Good Lion podcast. You guys are awesome. We love having you guys listen. We're so thankful for you guys. If you liked episode five, you're going to like episode six, which is going to be all about what does it mean for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. If you like the work that we're doing and you want to support us, you can go to goodlion.io forward slash support to make a donation. We would appreciate it so much. And if you can't do that, go on iTunes and just like us, give us a review, tell people about us. All we want to do with this show is bless people, help people get to know Jesus better and provide free resources for the body of Christ. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of Hased Creative. That's my nonprofit ministry. Brian Higgins, and the Calvary Global Network. Check us out at goodlion.io for lots of other shows and resources and great stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. You're the best. Until next time, I'm Aaron Salvato. This is the Good Lion Podcast.